you brought a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, And if you are joining us online, that scripture will be on the screen of whatever device you're joining us on. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and we'll be there shortly. To get us started, though, I want to read you guys uh, a poem. Uh, And this one is called Time of the Mad Adam. This is the age of the half-read page and the quick hash and the mad dash the bright night with the nerves tight, the plane hop with a brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a good spot, and the brain strain and the heart pain, and the cat naps till the spring snaps and the fun's done. A little, a little poem is about the pace of American life, the pace of the modern world, how we are quick from one place to the next, always in a hurry. But what might surprise you the most about that piece is that it was written originally for the Saturday Evening Post in 1949. We were already in a hurry over a half a century ago. Now, if you think that's a long time ago to be in a hurry, let me read you something from much, much, much further back in the history of mankind from that one. This is written by Roman philosopher Plautus. I don't know if I'm saying that right, P-L-A-U-T-U-S. He said these words, The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. Now, I find that interesting because it lets me know that ever since the advent of any device to measure time, people have been complaining about being in a hurry, even the sundial. Whenever the sundial was created, there was philosophers like this guy, Plotus, complaining about his day being actually in the smaller portions because now we had this device to tell our hours where they were going. I've been reading a book recently called Ruthless, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by, by a guy named John Mark Comer that I would suggest to anybody. Uh, it's something that can speak to whatever phase of life you're in. Uh, and it is about what the title says it's about, eliminating hurry from our life. That's where I got this quote from Plautus. Uh, and in his book, John Mark Comer talks about different uh, uh, periods in time uh, where we learn to keep track of time more precisely. Uh, and how every time there was someone somewhere saying, decrying how this particular way of keeping time was making things worse, not better, uh, making us less efficient, not more efficient. Uh, Another one is the first time, and I think it was a village in Germany, where a clock tower was actually set up in the city square where people could see the time and have that. And even then, they began to hurry even more because they could see the hours counting down. So if you think hurry is something new in the American world, something 21st century uh, in the world at large, then, well, you're wrong. We've always been in a hurry. There is something about us as, as human beings, I think, that pushes us to be at a faster and faster pace. In his book, John Mark Comer also talks about how, and again, I think this was around the 50s, uh, that there was some uh, sort of uh, subcommittee or something formed by Congress who was studying efficiency and, uh, and how automation was becoming more and more a part of American life um, and how that was going to affect the future. So they were looking at future, future broadcasting in the business world. Uh, and this group thought because automation was becoming more and more commonplace, um, machines were being able to do things that humans once had to do by hand, and so things were more efficient. 
efficient. They thought that by the turn of the century, uh, by the time of us today here in 2021, uh, that people would be working half the time, literally 20 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week. They would have much more time off, that people would have more vacation, uh, that people would take more uh, days off, wouldn't have a long of a work week. That's what they presumed would happen, that we would get so good at automation, so good at getting machines and computers to do our work for us, that we would have more free time. And now that's half true, isn't it? Because machines have made things more efficient. Uh, it has made us able to be able to get more things done at once. Uh, and a lot of more things done at once than we did a century ago. But they didn't take into account the reality that for every free moment we had, we were going to stuff it with something else, right? We were going to figure out another way to spend our time. It's not as if we were going to say, oh, look, free time. I get to spend it with my family. I get to spend it time with the Lord. No, they had a little bit too rosy of a view of humanity. It's, oh, look, free time. I get to veg out in front of the television and watch Netflix. I get to look on my phone and distract myself from the distractions that are distracting me from the main thing. This is the busyness of our current world. You know, there are some good times when we should be in a hurry. In a medical emergency, if you ever have to have someone call an ambulance for you, you probably want the EMTs to be in a hurry, right? Uh, you don't want them to show up and say, oh, you're having a heart attack? Well, uh, sorry, my lunch break just started five minutes ago. Uh, the traffic is bad on 35 anyway. Just give me a minute and then I'll, I'll get to you. Uh, you don't want to hear from a fireman if your house is burning down that, uh, hey, we were, uh, we were just playing a game of cornhole at the, at the firehouse and we'll be there as soon as we're done. No, you want a little bit of hurry in those kind of situations, right? If your electricity is about to be cut off, you're going to hurry up and call the electric company to make sure that the power doesn't go out, that the heat doesn't go out. You're going to do what needs to be done. And I thought of one place where hurry is always a good thing, and that's in a 100-yard dash. You've got to be in a hurry in a race, right? That's the whole point is to beat the other people around you. But there are a lot of things in our life where hurry is counterproductive. As a matter of fact, I would go ahead and argue and contend that there are most times in life when hurry is counterproductive. I enjoy cooking. Uh, and anybody else who enjoys cooking, you know that in order to prepare a good quality meal, you have to take time. Right? I've had a, a propane, uh, propane grill in the past, had a charcoal grill that I use a lot now, and I just got my first smoker for Christmas uh, this, this past Christmas, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, if you know anything about barbecue or smoking, you know one of the rules of barbecue and smoking is low and slow. Right? You have the temperature at a lower grade, uh, and you make sure you cook it as long as you can before that brisket or whatever you have uh, gets to the temperature that it's supposed to be. And so last week I got to cook a, a brisket, uh, got to do it all day. Uh, you know, you smell like smoke at the end of it. it I don't know, it just, it just makes you feel like a man. Can I get, a, can I get an amen from in the house? Um, something about that, you know, and it turned out pretty good. Enjoyed it, had a nice spark, it had that nice red ring around it like a smoked brisket's supposed to. Uh, and it wouldn't have tasted nearly as good if I'd cooked it at 400 degrees for an hour, right? It would have tasted pretty bad if I'd cooked it at that, right? Because fast and hot doesn't equal the same taste that low and slow does. Cooking always takes, cooking good food always takes time. Um, I'm guessing that most of you appreciate El Phoenix more than you do Taco Bell. Now, maybe there's some that are like, nope, Taco Bell is my jam. But for most of you in the house, you're going to appreciate the stuff that takes a little longer and know that it tastes a little better. Whenever you're talking to somebody in customer service, whether you had something break on Christmas Day or the day after and you call them and try to figure out what's going on or you go into Best Buy and you want to talk to somebody at their... Um, 
It's not the Genius Bar, that's the Apple thing. You know, whatever they have, the Geek Squad. Uh, or, or you want to go in somewhere else and try to talk to somebody to get to help you with a problem. If, if you can tell that they're just trying to get through, they're not really interested in helping you, they're just wanting to check you off the quota list and move on to somebody else, you're probably not going to give them a good rating on customer service. When we need help, we want someone to, to focus in, zoom in, and slow down and help us with what we need so that they can hear us. And a more serious note... Spending time with friends and family, quality time with friends and family, is something that can't be done in a hurry. We often take offense uh, when someone, uh, we thought we were going to spend some time with them and they're looking at their clock constantly or checking their phone constantly and, and, and thinking, you've know, been there 15 minutes, oh, i got to go. It's like, uh, you know, just getting any ounce of time is hard sometimes for some folks. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, John Mark Comer kind of reflects over one of the reasons why he decided to write this book, or at least give it the name that he did. Uh, and he tells a story about his spiritual mentor, a guy named John Ortberg. Many of you might have heard John Ortberg before. He's a Christian author, pastor in California, a fairly large congregation, fairly influential writer. Uh, and he reflects on a conversation he had with his spiritual mentor, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. Uh, and John Ortberg, one day in the midst of a busy, busy ministry season uh, and a busy family season, he had kids and kids were going several different directions, had ministry, everything was, being, everything was successful, the numbers looked good, but he just felt like something was off. And so he called his spiritual mentor, Dallas Willard, another great author, and called them up and just talked to him about this problem, this feeling that he had that he couldn't get over and wanted advice on what to do. And Dallas Willard said to him, he said, when he was asked what to do, he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And there was a pause in the conversation. And then John Orberg asked, okay, like I, I've wrote, I wrote that one down. That was a good one. Okay, what's next? Like, what's the next thing that I need to do? That, that's good. I could start there. And Dallas Willard said, no, that's it. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I think that is the word that we in the American world today are in need of hearing. In his book, Comer quotes uh, Thomas Burton who says that the rush and pressure of modern life is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. I know that sounds over the top, but think about it for a moment. The rush and pressure of modern life is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. Talk to most medical professionals, they will tell you that the amount of stress-related illnesses are boggling. Our, you know, most illness, many illnesses have a lot to do with the stress that we put on our bodies and the way our bodies don't respond well to the stressful environments in which we live. And we perpetrate violence against our families by the dissolution of the family in part because we are always so busy and so desperately in a hurry to get stuff done and buy more stuff and do more stuff and we forget and miss the things that really matter. But here's the truth I wanna share with you this morning. You don't have enough time to hurry through life. You don't have enough time to hurry through this life. None of us do. And hurrying through it will be a waste of it. We're gonna read a portion of scripture here in Deuteronomy 6 that is the Old Testament version of the greatest commandment. It's actually what Jesus quotes when he's asked what is the greatest commandment. Jesus, of course, adds there is a second like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, but the greatest commandment, to love God with everything that we have, comes from this passage. Uh, there's part of this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, or 4 through 9, that's known as the, the Shema. It's something that the Israelites viewed as, as 
like their mission statement, if you will, a core belief of who they were, something that they would chant and, and still today uh, share vocally with one another. Therefore, most scholars believe this is the most quoted portion of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, you might think John 3.16 would be that, but that's just the New Testament. Uh, when we talk about Israelites, when we talk about Jews, uh, we talk about Jews and Christians, this particular portion of Scripture is probably the most spoken aloud portion of Scripture in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 is that part, but we're going to read all the way back uh, through 1 through 9. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being here with us. God, as we reflect on the pace of the world around us, God, I am moved to marvel at the fact that you take the time to be here with us today in this moment. God, I'm often tempted to think that you view my little life and my needs as trivial. The things that you deal with, wars and leaders, kings, powers, and principalities. But yet you are here. And you number every hair on our heads. You know all the days of our life before any of them are written. God, that you are with us. We give you praise for that simple fact. And God, I pray that through your presence with us this morning, God, that you would remove the temptation of hurry and distraction from us so that we might focus, laser focus in on your word and what you have for us this morning. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit and through the truth of your word, you would do a work of transformation within us. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes of, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be written or shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The words to the Israelites in this passage are given in preparation of the life before them, of the time that they would move into the promised land, that they might fulfill and live out and take hold of the promises that God had put in front of them, that their days would be many, many and that they would be plentiful. Not only is it meant for the people who are hearing these words delivered from God through Moses, but it's also for the generations that would succeed them. This is for your son and your son's son, he says. So they hear the, this truth as, as knowing that this is the main thing as they move into the promised land. 
this is what they ought to keep at heart the most. Uh, this is what is at the center of everything that is going to propel them forward as a people. And then he gives that great commandment. He starts and reminds us of a claim that was central and is also central to us that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, that there is one God. This was an essential fact uh, for the Jewish people because they lived in a land where many gods were worshiped, but they believed that there was one true God and it was the God that was going to lead them into the promised land. This is the one true God. And here is how we ought to respond to the one true God, to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. That is the great commandment. It is the great commandment when Jesus repeats it later in the gospel, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and might. With everything that you are, you ought to love this God, this God who is going to lead them into the promised land. You cannot both love Jesus with all that you are and live a hurried life. You can't, because a hurried life is a divided life. A hurried person is a divided person. You wanna know what I mean by that and whether or not you ever experienced this kind of hurry. A hurried or a divided person is someone who finds it really hard to be present in the moment. If you've had this happen to you, you know that this can happen when you're in a situation with your family or at church or in a movie theater or a football game or any kind of situation and you find yourself, instead of being present in that moment, instead of listening to what your spouse or your kids might have to say, instead of following the storyline of the movie that, you're, movie that you're watching with your family, and instead of paying attention to whatever is right in front of you, that your mind is running a thousand miles an hour on something else, somewhere else that has to be done on Monday, a bill that needs to be paid, uh, something at work, uh, a project that needs to be done, uh, a relationship that's faltering. You're somewhere else, you're divided and you're hurried because you can't even in that moment exist, fully exist in that moment. Now, I, I think that's probably fairly pervasive that all of us feel those kind of sensations from time to time. And I think that that tells us a bleak reality that a lot of times in our world, when we're hanging out with people, we are talking to half a person or three quarters of a person because their head is somewhere else their mind is somewhere else, then a lot of times, if we're gonna be honest with ourselves, we're half there, if that, because we have so many other irons in the fire. One of the main things that tells you that you have hurry sickness, according to a lot of different experts, is if you multitask so much that you consistently find yourself forgetting which task you said you were going to get done. You have so many tasks on the list that you don't remember all of them, that you can't remember all of them. That's not called multitasking. That's called not getting things done, right? And in the end, it doesn't end up being very helpful. Uh, it's overdoing the idea of multitasking. where We are less efficient, not more efficient. It is impossible for us to love Jesus with everything that we have when we are hurried. Because when we're hurried, we aren't giving him our entire self. In those times that we set aside to have with Jesus, I'm confessing this to you as your, as your pastor, as your spiritual leader. One of the times that I have the hardest time being the most present is in times that I set aside to be just with God. That's when my mind races the most. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that. 
uh, I'm here to clue, clue, clue you in on a reality that's going on in a battle that we need to fight and that we need to be ready to fight to ruthlessly eliminate hurry because if we're not fully present with God what are we missing it's, it's not as if God isn't speaking it's that we might not be present to hear it what are we missing if we are hurrying through even our relationship with the Lord and then with this command to love God with everything that we are, we're told that we ought to pass that along, that we ought to spread that news, to teach it to the generations to come. These words you should teach to your children, these words shall be on your heart. To put something on and in your heart is something that takes time, doesn't it? If you ever had to memorize anything, you know that it didn't, unless you have one of those eidetic memories or whatever, those picture memories where you can look at something once and just remember it, unless you're uniquely gifted in that way, uh, if you're going to remember something or memorize something, you have to spend a little time on it, right? I know when I had to memorize scripture or I had to memorize things for school, you know, I would break it down into smaller portions. Uh, I, I would use some sort of device where I could, I could set up and tell a story through the answers with the first letter uh, of each answer and try to mnemonic device, remember things that that way uh, we have to do mind tricks and be really present with that material in order to memorize it and put it in our heart and then when it comes to memorizing scripture once we've memorized it we don't just move on and never think about it again right uh, if you spend an entire week memorizing a scripture and by the next week you can say it by heart but then you don't think about it again for three months chances are when you try to recall it three months later it's not going to be there it's something that takes consistent work uh, and, and, and scripture memory is absolutely important but that's not really what I'm talking about I'm just using that as an example of what it takes to really put something in our heart is it take constant devotion and constant attention uh, and he goes on to explain that a little bit here in a moment that I'll explain further. But if we are going to put something in our heart, it's not going to happen in a hurry. And these commandments, this commandment to love God with everything that we are, we are told then that we ought to teach it diligently to our children. I like the fact that the adverb is added in there because it, it, it notices the way that this takes and that we have to work on teaching it to our children. We have to, we have to put our energy and our mind and our focus into this. This is not something that we can do offhandedly. This is not something we can do that we can, hey, put a paper in front of the kid and say, here you go, here's how you should follow the Lord. Read up on that and get back to me uh, with a report on it. No, this is something that we actively involved with our children in teaching them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength with everything that they are, watching us walk that walk and teaching them how to walk the walk as well. We talk of these things when we sit in our house, when we're together at home. One of the main reasons or, or, or one of the main examples of, uh, of how hurry ha has distracted us so much in the modern world is the fact that there's, there's so little time at home because we have things to do outside of the home all of the time. And again, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. If you're feeling guilty, then you're just hearing it. That's not what I'm trying to do with any of this this morning. Instead, again, I'm trying to clue us in to how we can change and steal back the time that we have so readily given away to the world around us. To sit at home and talk about these things is what we are commanded to do. Perhaps over the dinner table. I think that's one of the great places in the American family life where we can sit and share life 
with one another, the good and the bad of the day, as well as what God is doing in our lives, what God is speaking to us. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Talk of them when you walk by the way, wherever you go, whatever you do, whether you're going to to work or to the store, uh, have God at the forefront of your mind and loving God at the forefront of your mind uh, as Jesus (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. As Jesus would tell us that, that when we go out into the world, that, that we, no matter what we're doing, he ought to be our focus. He ought to be the thing that we focus on the most and that everything we do, we do it for his glory. Paul uh, would encourage us to do that, that all that we do, we do for God's glory and we keep him at the forefront of our mind. We put them on our hands and our foreheads. Moses commands the people to put them on their doorposts of their house. Now, when it comes to hands and foreheads, uh, the Jews and Orthodox Jews still today take that quite literally. Uh, Cheryl and I got to see some examples of that when we went to Israel last January, uh, especially on the flight there. Uh, we, had, we were in the plane from New York to Tel Aviv uh, with several Orthodox Jews, actually sat right beside one, Cheryl did. Uh, and there was a point uh, during uh, the, the day when they got up and they did their normal like ritual worship. I say during the day, it was in the middle of the night, actually. Uh, but they got up, and it was time in Israel to do it. And so they, they got up, and they, they put these like ribbon things around their hand that had Scripture written on them. Uh, they put things called phylacteries on their foreheads, which had scrolls in them, a little box. They took this very literally. Uh, a frontlet between their eyes wrapped around their head. And then they would hold these things, and they would stand up and walk up and down the aisles of the plane, which is, you know, it was a it was a, a overseas flight, so that's not too crazy, but they would walk up and down the aisles of the plane, and they would kind of, you know, go back and forth uh, and, and chant uh, what, I, I don't know, it was Hebrew, I don't know what they were saying, but uh, it's, we see that in, in what they do in Israel as well, and we had been warned about it, so we weren't too taken aback by it, but we got to see them take that quite literally, and when it comes to actually putting those on your doorpost, they take that quite literally as well. Uh, if you've ever been in Israel, uh, you've seen that in, in, in most places, in Jerusalem especially, uh, Orthodox Jews, they will have these boxes, little bitty boxes, which a little bitty scroll uh, with some of the Torah written on it uh, can be placed in it, and then the box itself with the scroll inside of it will be screwed to their door frames, taking this scripture literally, uh, putting it on their door frames. Even the hotels that we stayed in in Jerusalem, uh, uh, they were built Orthodox Jews could stay there, uh, and so they had to put those on the door frames of all of the doors of every hotel room. Uh, it's interesting, and I can see some value in taking that literally, but I also think there's some symbolic truth behind that as well. Uh, when we think about writing that on our hands and on our foreheads, uh, we think about the, 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 the actions of our hands, the, the things that we do, the work of our hands, ought uh, to bear out the reality that we love God with everything that we have. And then our mind ought to be captive to the word of God and to the love of God, and we ought to be focusing on that and nothing else, being transformed by the power of God within us and not conformed to the world around us, that we ought to have our mind focused on Christ. Uh, And then our homes ought to be known as places of refuge for the word and love of Christ. Uh, That the love of God ought to to, uh, compel as as hope as parents uh, to make sure that our home is an environment in which the love of God is present and the word of the Lord is celebrated. Uh, and, and so there's, there's value in, in all of these things that we're being told to do. But here is a common thread that runs throughout all of them. None of them can be done in a hurry. 
You can't diligently teach your children the ways of God in a hurry. If you are constantly hurried, that's what they're going to remember, is your constant hurry, not what you taught them. But the amount of time that you had to give them being super brief, maybe they'll get a couple of, glean a couple of moments from that, but if we are always in a hurry, telling them that we're busy, too busy to teach the word of God, then we are robbing them of something important of something that we as moms and dads are commanded by scripture to teach the generations that follow. And not only are we robbing our children, but there are also our children's children that are going to be affected by that choice. Unless the gospel comes in from some other source and breaks that we're inflicting upon the generations that will succeed us. It is our job to pass on that truth from one generation to the next. The most important person that you will ever lead to Christ, the most important person with whom you will ever have a gospel conversation is not someone you meet out of the way, it is someone, parents, that you raise. It is someone in your home. It is your children. And that is where we start. That is where we all start in sharing the truth of God. And it doesn't happen in a hurry, nor does putting the word of God in our heart, nor does keeping the word of God central in all that we do happen in a hurry, nor does building a home and a life that reeks of God's love and truth, none of that happens in a hurry. Jesus would tell us just before he ascended into heaven, the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and obey everything that I commanded you, to make disciples. In a way, it's the same kind of thing that's being talked about here in Deuteronomy, where he says, love God with everything that you are, and then here's how you disseminate that information from generation to generation. Jesus says, go and make disciples and teach them to do everything that I told you to do. You cannot both make disciples and live a hurried life. There's no such thing as a hurried disciple. To be a disciple of someone means, quite literally in the New Testament, to sit in their presence. Disciples were known as disciples because they would get the dust of the rabbi on them. In other words, as the rabbi would walk, they would walk right behind, and in the dusty Palestinian area, the the, the sandals that the rabbi would kick up, the, the dirt that would be kicked off the sandals behind him would get on the disciples, and that's how people knew they were disciples because the dust of the rabbi got on them. He had to follow the rabbi wherever he went. That's what, the Jew, that's what Jesus' disciples tried to do with him. But even then, sometimes they got in a hurry, didn't they? Uh, go, go and read the scriptures and look at the times the disciples were in a hurry. Uh, when the woman with the issue of bleeding came to Jesus and touched his garment, and he said, who touched me? The disciples look at him, and you get the idea with this incredulous question, like, Jesus, you know who touched you. Why are you asking this question? Can't we move it along? Jesus, we have important things to do. Remember, you're on your way to bring somebody back from the dead. Can we go ahead and get there instead of dealing with this? Or when the children wanted to come to Jesus and the disciples were shooing them away, Jesus said, hey, hold up. Let the little children come to me. Guess what? The kingdom of heaven comes to such like these who receive as little children. He was always willing to be inconvenienced and take out from his mission, which was without exaggeration, the mission that anybody on earth has ever had. He was willing to take time out from that mission in order to love people well, because that was his mission, was to love people well. If Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced, guess what? Your work deadline 
can wait because the gospel deadline was a little bit more important than your work deadline. Can I get an amen on that one? I know that's hard to hear, but it's the reality. If Jesus' mission could be put on hold for him to love people well, then whatever you are busy with, whatever hurry you're in, can be put on hold for you to love your family well, for you to love your friends well, and for you to love those around you well. You cannot both make disciples and live a hurried life. Hurry is the antithesis of love. And if you hurry through life, you will miss those you profess to love the most. Through life, you will leave a legacy behind you, but not the one you want. You will leave a legacy behind you of work, 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 go, 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 get stuff done at the expense of those around you. I don't think that's the legacy any of us want to leave behind us. And look, I think the reason why Dallas Willard told John Ortberg on that phone conversation that the one thing you must do is ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life is because he knew how hard of a task that is in our modern world to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not a hurried person. But again, let me ask you a few questions to catch up on that. Does anybody ever come to you and they're gonna ask a favor and they start their favor with, you're really busy, but, and they fill in the blank. There's a chance if that's how they come to you, then that maybe you put off the air of a really busy person. Now, I'm gonna step on my toes because people come to me in that frame a lot. So I must give off that air sometimes. Or do you, when you're sitting, you go to HEB or Walmart or any other really busy grocery store uh, and you go in to the 20 items or less line and somebody has 18 items in front of you and you get really, really, really upset because you have somewhere to be, that's none of y'all, right? Nobody has one of those moments. Or you're sitting in the line, one of the longer lines, uh, maybe you went shopping right before Christmas or something and you were in one of those long lines at Target or Walmart or wherever uh, and you're sitting there waiting and you could tell the person that's up talking to the cashier is having trouble with something. And so you start looking at the other lines, right? And the other lines are getting shorter and yours is, is not moving, I'm going to jump to the other line, right? Or if you're in traffic, right, you're sitting in the right lane, you know, you're driving for a while, things slows down, and the people in the left lane start going faster. Well, they must know something I don't, so I'm going to go over to the left lane real quick, and then when I get over to the left lane, well, the right lane starts moving better, so I'm going to go back to the right lane, not knowing that the whole reason why there's a traffic jam is because of people like you. Can I get an amen on that one? Because you're going back and forth. Now, we're all tempted to do that sometimes, aren't we? I mean, I just, we spent a lot of time on the road the last uh, week uh, and, and got to experience some of that road rage when you get in the left lane and there's a big stack of cars and people are trying to pass you on your right and you're thinking, no way, buddy, I'm not letting you in. If you find yourself having road rage consistently, there might be a hurry issue in your life. If you find your kids constantly asking, hey, can, can I just have a minute? and you're self-responding, I can't right now, I'm busy. And maybe there's a hurry issue in your life. If you can make time for just about everything except you and the Lord, perhaps there's a hurry issue in your life. How do you ruthlessly eliminate 
hurry from your life. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I do know one thing. It's gonna mean saying no to some things so that you can say yes to some more important things. And I say no to some things, I don't mean no to trivial things, I mean no to things that other people might think are really important, but that you know there are more important things that have to be done. For some of you, it's gonna be easier than others, but if we could live a less hurried life, what would that mean for our families? What would it mean for your children if, if they know and years from now can look back and remember the times you said no to work or, 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 or social times or whatever to spend time with just them? What would that mean to them moving forward? What would it mean for your own walk with the Lord if you did the hard work of ruthlessly eliminating enough time from your day to set aside 30 minutes for God and you? And if you do that, you might find yourself super distracted the first several times you do it, but just give it time. Nobody's good at anything when they first start it. You need practice. What might it change in your life if you were unhurried? If you could slow down and smell the spiritual roses. Slow down and spend time with those that matter most. I don't think you'll be disappointed if you make that a goal for 2021. How about that for a New Year's resolution? I want to do less so I can be more. You know, that saying less is more. I think that's true in this case, but I also think the opposite is true sometimes in our hurried pace. More can be less. We could find ourselves doing more things, but being less efficient and being less of who we know we're called to be. May I encourage you, starting now, as we are about to enter into a time of invitation and leading forward into whatever time you spend with the Lord this week, that you would consider where in your life hurry can be eliminated? Where in your life can margin be made so that you can spend more time with God and with the people who are most important to you? Where can you ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? Think and pray on this while we have our last song here in just a moment. As the band is coming down, if there's anybody else uh, who here this morning who who you just want to know more about Jesus or you have something else completely different going on, uh, I want to pray for you about that or anything else. I'll be down here to pray with you while we're singing. Uh, I'll be around after the service as well uh, if you would like to, uh, to come and talk then uh, about whatever God is, is laying on your heart. Uh, but again, I just encourage you now as we sing this last worship song together to begin thinking through that question. Where can I ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life so that I can be more present with God and the people that matter most to me? Pray on that where you're at. You can come at the altar and kneel and pray. You can pray with me. But let us begin that conversation with God as we sing this last song of praise to him. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in that last song. And as they do, I encourage you again to listen to the voice of God. Father, we thank you for being here with us, being present with us this morning. God, it is a daunting task to think about 
things, important things from our life and from our schedules so that we might be more present with you. But God, we know that it is one that will bear great fruit. So Lord, I pray that you show us how to eliminate hurry. God, that you clue us in on places in our lives where we can create margin, where we can steal back the time that we've given away to the world around us. And God, may you be glorified through that time. May you be glorified in all that we do. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.